Welcome to a podcast called Intrepid. My name's Craig Forces. I'm here with Stephanie Carvin today in the observation room at the University of Ottawa's courthouse. And Stephanie, we have our last news roundup for this season, season two. What are we talking about? Well, we are going to do another news cap episode. There's been a number of developments that we want to talk about before we end this season. So we're going to talk a little bit about the orders in council, which have finally started bringing parts of C-59 into effect. So, you know, we talked a bit about that when we talked about what's next for C-59. So we finally have the order in council. So uh, we're just going to have you explain them because they're actually really complicated to read. So that's just going to go in the Craig department file. And then we're going to talk about the BCCLA's uh, new, uh, I guess they're calling it the protest papers, their new campaign, uh, basically arguing that uh, CSIS is all up in their business, or at least for the environmental groups. I I have some issues with that. So, and so BCCLA is British Columbia Civil Liberties Association. Yes. Right. So I have, I have some issues with that. We'll, we'll work through that. We'll work, you know, it's cheap therapy. Next, I just thought we'd briefly talk about uh, on the other side, because uh, CSIS has kind of been in the news for the wrong reason, I think. Uh, for two reasons. <laughs> Firstly, that one. But secondly, the Conservatives wrote a letter to CSIS saying they should investigate John McCallum for basically foreign interference. Right. So and, our, our uh, former ambassador to China, right. former, former minister in the Trudeau government. Yep. And uh, that's uh, that's also not a good idea. But, you know, again, a cheap therapy for a pod- through podcasting. And then finally, I thought we'd just catch up on a few quick stories and talk about what we want to do next season. Great. Wonderful. And then, you know, academics, we we just, you know, all we really do is sleep the whole summer. Oh we don't do anything. We just kind I, of lay back and relax. I'm almost <laughs> through the second run through the National Security Law second edition textbook that uh, I'm doing with Leah West. Uh, it's starting to get much tighter. It's helpful that uh, C-59 is passed. And so all those things that have been uh, color-coded for check to make sure this is still the case. Once the bill passes, that's I can all take that out. And uh, But it's been a huge amount of work. Uh, I'm, the first edition was 600 pages. And uh, my ambition this time around was to make sure that it wasn't any longer and removing all the comparative uh, material, British and American comparative material. But the reality is that the space is much more legalized. And so as, as a consequence, it's very hard to get away with not actually growing it a bit. So I'm hoping that uh, the publisher doesn't have a meltdown uh, when we submit. <laughs> I'm still hoping it'll be in the 600 page Is this Irwin Law? Irwin Law, uh, yeah. Hi, Irwin Law. I hope you're listening. <laughs> well, it's never polite to ask someone how their writing is going. So uh, I'm, glad, <laughs> I'm glad you provided that update. Uh, but that's interesting. Like the fact is, because when, when was the first edition of that book out? It's an old book. It's 2007. So uh, my original plan was to update it in 2014. And then we got into the C-51 uh, debate. And, was that a thing? Uh, yeah. So Kent Roach and I decided <laughs> that we would write the, the book's false security, which was a critique rather than a textbook. And the, the area, the law has been uncertain since then. And so I, I kept uh, kicking the ball down the field in the hopes that there would come up a point at which it, it would be sensible to update the book. And this is the right point. Okay. Well, coming to a bookstore near you eventually. Yeah. Good luck getting books <laughs> on a bookshelf. <laughs> Um, okay, well, why don't we start with our first topic, the Orders in Council. Right, okay, so uh, just to refresh everyone's memory, C-59, what was called Bill C-59, now formally called the National Security Act of 2017, received royal assent. That is the, the last process uh, involving Parliament, and in practice it involves the Governor General nodding her assent, because it was actually a ceremony as opposed to being done on paper, for this bill and a number of others in June, at the end of June. At that point with royal assent, as I mentioned in a prior podcast, the default often is that the provisions will come into force in that particular act, except where the act itself establishes a different rule. And with C-59, there were a number of different rules established as to when given provisions would come into force, all of which require 
that the governor council, effectively cabinet, issue an order in council bringing those provisions into force. So on royal assent, what came into force? Well, the renovated threat reduction powers of CSIS, they were in force as of royal assent. Uh, most of the revamped Security of Candidate Information Sharing Act uh, was enforced. The amendments to the criminal code involving the what I call the speech crime. And this was this was the thing everyone was freaking out about with regards to counseling uh, terrorist right, events. Right, right. So, so those all came into force. Uh, the other aspects of the bill, and, f- and frankly, the the ones that have engaged us most over the last two years, awaited this order in council. Now, orders in council were in fact issued on the twelfth of July. So, we're recording this on. On a Friday, so a week ago, uh, they were issued, and they're a bit complex and a bit convoluted to read. But the bottom line is now in force is the Avoiding Complicity in Mistreatment of Foreign Entities Act, which was an add-on that that went into the bill after first reading in the House of Commons, which codifies a requirement that there be ministerial directions relating to information sharing where there might be the risk of maltreatment. Which is the, actually the topic I think of our first our or very second first episode. podcast. Yeah. Go right back to our first podcast. Now there's a formal it's requirement a full circle. that these exist and that they actually be publicly reported, which is very useful because up until 2017, the 2017 instruments were released proactively. But prior to that, the only reason we were able to find out what these ministerial directions said was through access to information requests, which is a fairly laborious way of finding out what your government is doing. Uh, And so uh, that's now in force. The core review slash oversight regimes are now in force. And so the Intelligence Commissioner Act, which constitutes the Intelligence Commissioner, which essentially converts what was the office of the CSE Commissioner into the Intelligence Commissioner, who will perform an oversight role in many capacities. And so one of the oversight roles that the Intelligence Commissioner will perform is, for example, to bless or not the uh, list of classes of data set that the minister says that CSIS can collect under the data set regime. And most importantly for some of our conversations, the new Intelligence Commissioner serves as sort of a quasi-judicial officer who will review on a reasonableness standard ministerial directions that allow CSE to collect information that amounts to a private communication or may trigger a reasonable expectation of privacy uh, for a person in Canada or Canadian. As recall, CSE doesn't have a mandate to directly target, at least autonomous mandate to directly target Canadians or persons in Canada, but in its collection activities, it may incidentally collect uh, Canadian information because of the operations of the global information infrastructure. If it collects, however, incidentally, say a private communication, I call you, you know, we are in Israel, so I call my wife from Israel, and for some reason CSC is conducting a collection activity and it intercepts my call, that's still a private communication, that would be unlawful, and actually you could go to jail for that. But for the fact that there's an exoneration and exemption, the exemption system now requires a ministerial blessing for that class of collection activity, but then also a vetting by an independent judicial officer, that is the intelligence commissioner, which puts it on a much sounder constitutional foundation than had been the case before. And so, and so this is important, say, for, I would say in particular, the uh, uh, cyber defense um, right. If you're going to be doing cyber defense in Canada, chances are you're going to incidentally collect information yes. on Canadians. So that would actually so to avoid confusing the idea of defensive cyber and and cybersecurity, what you're describing is under the CSE Act is called cybersecurity and information assurance. Yeah. And yes, if you're performing a cybersecurity function outward looking against uh, threat actors who might be engaged in a nefarious cyber activity against the systems you're trying to protect, 
in the course of directing your activities at those uh, threat actors, you might incidentally collect Canadian origin information, right? So you need the same permission and authorization regime in place uh, to uh, to avoid running into constitutional problems there. Right. So slightly different than the the scenario you were just talking about. Yeah. So I was about, talking right. about foreign so, intelligence collection, right? right and you're okay. talking about cybersecurity. Now, it is also the case just to t- talk a little bit about the other two mandates that we've talked about at length on this podcast. That is the active cyber and defensive cyber, uh, which we, we can call, I suppose, we can collectively put them together and, and we, can, we can call it uh, offensive cyber, in other words, the capacity to reach out and turn things off. Uh, in those circumstances, there is no role for the intelligence commissioner. And recall that that was a point of contention uh, amongst others uh, for some people who appeared in front of the parliamentary committees. They, they said the intelligence commissioner should have a role in blessing those kinds of activities. We don't have to get into that now, but uh, the bottom line is that with CSE, there's a number of different mandates, some of which will engage the role of the intelligence commissioner in an oversight capacity. And recall what we mean by oversight. Command control, right? Authorizations. It's authorizations in relation to activities. Uh, it's not back-end review. Yeah, so this is like oversight in the in the in the in the technical, technical sense of the sense word, of the we, word. In, in the way we mean it yeah. here in Canada. Now, the other thing that's come into force, just to come back to the orders in council, the National Security and Intelligence Review Agency, which replaces the Security Intelligence uh, Review Committee, which used to be the review body for CSIS, right? So the back end audit of performance to ensure compliance with ministerial direction and law. That was a role performed by CERC for CSIS. It was stovepiped to CSIS alone. It couldn't look beyond the bounds of CSIS. And there were very few alternative bodies that performed a review function for other intelligence agencies. What we have now is a new ENZIRA, right? We're going to have to debate how you're going to pronounce the acronym. The National Security Intelligence Review Agency, which has an all-of-government remit in the national security area to perform review. And so I'm going to emphasize that review, back-end audit, right? So performance, not performance audit so much, but it's compliance audit. It's compliance. It's also not efficacy. No, well, it could. And there's no reason why it couldn't be efficacy in the fabric of the act. My... Uh, expectation is that NZIRA and then, you know, the other fancy acronym we throw around, NZCOP, or you like, you, you'd like to N-Z-Cop. say N- N- NSICOP, NSICOP yeah. the National Security and Intelligence Committee of Parliamentarians, that there'll be a division of labor between those review bodies, because they're both review bodies. One will focus on efficacy, and I, I, that's really where the uh, NZCOP is really going, the Committee of Parliamentarians is really going, whereas the NZIRA will focus on nitty-gritty compliance yeah. uh, issues, which can be a very expert inquiry. Right. I mean, have you complied with the charter? Have you complied with your statute uh, in, in a way that um, uh, that requires sort of a sof- sometimes a very sophisticated legal analysis? Not that uh, NZCOP wouldn't do that. It's just that uh, you know, if you're going to build up staff to perform those functions, you might build up your staff a little bit differently. And so, uh, you know, there, I, I assume they're gonna, there's going to be a division of labor between those review bodies. In fact, the the acts encourage. Uh, coordination and cooperation between the review bodies. So, but I, I, as far as I am aware, the NSERA committee, as it were, the actual people, they, they haven't, they're not yet uh, no. announced or anything like that. No. But uh, presumably a lot of the people who are at CERC are now, if this kind of allows them to move over, right. so if the, they're moving the, over. The employees of, of CERC uh, presumably now have different business cards. <laughs> well. <laughs> Although not a website. I looked, there's no website yet. Oh. Uh, there's not a website for the intelligence commissioner either. So They should get the uh, <laughs> NSI cop web designers because they did a pretty good job. Yeah. And yeah. it was, it's There's a, it's, a template for Government of Canada now. It's, it's uh, really awful. It, it's pretty awful. Yeah. It's just, it's like... But it, it is actually more accessible for uh, accessibility technologies. Oh, Yeah. okay. All right, so what does that leave us with in terms of coming into force? Uh, so the other thing that came into force with the orders in council, the CSIS data set regime. Yes. All right, and so and, and there's a reason, there's an order here, right? You, you, you can't actually, ha- you can't 
fulfill the requirements of the CSIS data set regime until you have an intelligence commissioner. Because the intelligence commissioner's got to uh, essentially approve the classes of data set, that, at least Canadian data sets, that you're going to collect. And then ultimately, if you're going to keep a foreign data set, it's got to approve the, the retention of that foreign data set. So there's a role for the intelligence commissioner. So you need an intelligence commissioner before you can have an active data set regime. So the dominoes have to fall. Right Now we've got an intelligence commissioner, fine, the dominoes can fall, and you can bring into force the the data set regime and and actually at this point that the 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 clock is ticking once the classes are approved you can retain the d- data set falling within that class for 90 days for sort of a, a vetting for usefulness and to remove solicitor client information thereafter you have to go through a separate re- re- retention approval for Canadian data sets at the federal court for foreign data sets from the intelligence commissioner the clock is now ticking on that uh, under the structure the the transitional provisions in the act and so we know from circ reports in the past that CSIS has information and data sets. So the intelligence commissioner has basically walked into like just a pile well, of work. And the minister, <laughs> right? The minister yeah. has, because the minister first has to do the approval of the classes. Then the intelligence commissioner has to essentially certify the minister's work. Uh, and that then starts your 90-day uh, clock ticking. Well, your 90-day clock t- ticks as soon as you have the information within those classes. But we know that they have information, right? So they're going to run want to run this fast. So let's just hope that Ralph Goodale and John Pierre Plouffe, who is the intelligence yeah. commissioner, were not planning to do anything this summer. <laughs> well, Justice Plouffe is the former commissioner of yes. the CSE, and so he's stepped into the role of intelligence commissioner. So it makes con- sense to put Yeah, there's continuity yeah. there, right? It's not going to be a review function anymore. It's going to be an oversight function, but, you know, a judge, a retired judge in his case, he must be retired under the terms of the act. I hadn't realized he'd retired, but he has to under the terms of the act be a retired judge i assume he's retired but he's habituated to that that performance performing that oversight role presumably he's seen any number of uh, police warrants over the course of his career for example right okay so the other things that have come into force the immunity or justification regime for CSIS. this is circumstances where in its intelligence gathering uh, capacity CSIS may uh, have an employee or a source who has to break the law, essentially. You know, you have to infiltrate that terrorist group. In the course of infiltrating that terrorist group, you got to pay for their bus passes. Um, well, you've now financed a terrorist group, right? And so, in principle, you're culpable under the criminal code. I'm it, just picturing the CSIS agent in line at, like, the OC <laughs> Transpo booth. Sorry. Well, you have to get, you know, to the paintball camp somehow. Right. So, <laughs> so just Uber. Um, the bottom line is that there was never... There was no clarity as to whether the employee was ever immune in these circumstances. And there was a lot of clarity that the source was not going to be immune. So you were left with uh, a prosecutor who decided not to bring charges, which is probably not the best way to run a system, especially a system predicated on the rule of law. And so now there's this justification regime, which, again, has checks and balances. It has a role for the intelligence commissioner, right, in terms of deciding what classes of offenses uh, CSIS can be exonerated from in the course of its intelligence gathering uh, capacity. Now, a lot of people would think, oh my God, that's really bad, because what if they do really nefarious things? There is an outer limit, right? No torture, no uh, cruel and human and degrading treatment, no bodily harm, uh, no uh, serious uh, prospect of uh, property damage that causes serious injury, no violation of sexual integrity, right? So there are these outer limits. There's also a FATIC requirement that they not breach the charter. Yes. And the bottom line is that there is oversight at the front end, and then there's review at the back end, and a lot of internal checks and balances. Uh, it's actually more robust than the equivalent system for the police, which exists and has existed for 20 years under 25.1 of the criminal code. But I think that's actually probably a good thing because I would want to hold the intelligence agencies who can't actually prosecute or or arrest people. You would want them to, if they're going to be operating in this space, you'd almost want them to be at a slightly higher standard. Well, absolutely. And and because once the police do something, if, uh, you know, we've talked about the Nuttall case in in this uh, podcast series before. And so in that case, 
you know, the undercover, the police officer, was deeply invested in a terrorist plot to the point, they were so invested to the point that both the the B.C. Superior Court and the uh, B.C. Court of Appeal concluded that they actually had entrapped Mr. Nuttall and Ms. Cordy. Uh, In those circumstances, the police really should have got a 25.1 authorization. They were dealing in Semtex. I mean, they were were doing things that was a crime. They didn't actually get the 25.1 authorization. That seems like not But that all came out, right? I mean, it all came out in an open court. Now, and it came out in a way that made you think, why didn't the RCMP, you know, cross the T's and dots the I's on this? This is pretty bad. Um, But the bottom line is what the police do, at least in principle, is going to come out in court. Yeah. And so if they haven't done their authorization regime, someone's going to probably find out about it. Um, now, that's not, not every investigation will culminate in a criminal trial, but the, it, the, the purpose of the police is towards the prosecution of crimes, and, and as opposed to the intelligence service, whose chief responsibility is to advise the government of Canada. And there were something like 500 targets in the last, uh, I'm sorry, CERC report. Uh, well, what fraction of those targets are going to culminate in criminal charges? One or two, maybe. Yeah. And so uh, only a small fraction of what CSIS does in the intelligence space uh, will roll over into open court. And so you need more safeguards, more checks and balances. You need a review body to serve essentially as the proxy of what would otherwise be revelation in open court. So is that the OICs? Well, the, the last thing I'll oh, note is, okay. is, is that some of the Secure Air Travel Act is also now in force, but not, not the stuff that we've found most interesting. Uh, so the provisions, for example, that oblige the airlines to supply passenger information to public safety for the purpose of public safety then contrasting against our passenger protect so-called or no-fly list, that provision's not in force. The prospect of a redress number, that's not yet in force. And my understanding and my my assumption is that it's not in force because there's a lot of regulatory work that's required to get all those features in place uh, before you pull the trigger on the act. And so I know from conversations with public safety that the regulatory work is ongoing. Yes. Uh, and so there'll be a push on to get the regulations in place so that they can bring the statutory uh, provisions into, into force. Some of the Secure Air Travel Act amendments are in force, but uh, as I interpret the Orders in Council, and I may be wrong because I looked at them very quickly, uh, the ones that involve uh, transferring essentially the no-fly list and holding it entirely in the possession of the government rather than giving it all to the airlines and letting the airlines do the, the, the hits on the, on the list, that hasn't yet come into force. So, you know, I made a C-59 cake. If you were following our Twitter <laughs> feeds, you would have seen it. It's, it was there. I uh, mean, we should put it on the blog. Let's see why not. Yeah, yeah, we, we should. We put it on the blog. Picture of your cake. Yeah. <laughs> but, you know, I think when we finally get the, the no-fly stuff done, then I'll also have a... I think it's time for another... I'll, it'll definitely be time for another cake. So, so by the time I left, no one had consumed the intelligence commissioner, the minister, or the Yanzira. Did they, uh, did, did, did they get eaten? I, it's, it's, hard to, it's hard to remember specifically. <laughs> but the disrupted terrorist was eaten very early in the e- evening in terms of... Well, he, he was having a bad day to start with because he had been disrupted <laughs> right. successfully, okay. right? And I hope no one uh, no one consumed the no-fly list to kids' uh, family. No, no, no. They, they made it out. <laughs> okay. They made it out. I think. Uh, okay. I'm just trying to think, you know, if we ever solve intelligence to evidence, I'm going to have to, like, try to figure out what that looks like and fond it. <laughs> oh, my God. It's going to be a whole thing. <laughs> Okay, should we move on? Yes. Um, uh, so, so two issues uh, regarding CSIS were in the news recently. One were some kind of angry stuff from environmentalists, and one was some angry stuff from the conservatives, although they weren't angry at CSIS, they were angry at John McCallum, as indicated in the beginning of the podcast. So let's let's deal with the, the so-called protest papers first. So on Monday, July 8th, uh, the BCCLA released what it called basically a trove of heavily redacted CSIS documents. Um, and they, indi- I think they're trying to make the argument that, actually, 
like they are trying to make the argument that the service is monitoring the organized activities of peaceful protests of indigenous groups and environmentalists who were opposed to a now defunct pipeline project. Um, this is a long-standing complaint. It goes back to 2014 when they originally took it to the uh, to CERC, which we just talked about, um, and. Basically, they investigated and they found that there really had been there had been some incidental collection with regards to these groups, but there was nothing to suggest that these individuals were actually being targeted in any kind of meaningful way. This was rejected by uh, BCCLA and, and the environmentalist groups. They they felt that this was unsatisfactory. They took it to federal court, I believe, in uh, 2018, and so I believe the release of the document is a part of this trial. Yeah. There's a couple issues here, and, yeah. and I mean, like, look, I think we all know. Can, my- can I just jump in there? Just, just sure. So we didn't mention that CERC has a complaints function, right? So, yes. Uh, anything the service do does, in principle, uh, you can bring a complaint about it to CERC, which will be a complaints function inherited by the NZERA uh, now. Uh, and the complaint was adjudicated by Yves Fortier, who's a member of CERC, a very prominent lawyer, international lawyer, does international commercial arbitration, very well known, very respected who ultimately concluded that there was no merit to the complaint, that is, that the service had not engaged in uh, unlawful collection of a, a protest, right? And so there's some law issues there around the scope and mandate of the service, which we can get into, because I think that's where you want to go. I think so. Uh, yeah, so, but but the the reason that we're finding out about this now... I mean, now, I just have rage, you have knowledge. <laughs> let's, just, let's just work with that. So the reason we're finding out about this now is because the decision, Yves Fortier's decision, came out some months ago, and then it was judicially reviewed to the federal court, which hasn't actually rendered a decision yet. But there was a, there was a non-disclosure order imposed on the record that uh, was before the CERC member in the complaint that non-disclosure order, my understanding, is that it's expired. And so th- what we're seeing in these so-called protest papers is the record that was before Yves Fortier, which is now part of the record before the federal court. And so essentially they're court documents um, because they're part of the proceeding. And they're heavily redacted, as you might imagine, because it's for public release. Uh, and while CERC- A lot of that data, I think, was also from the third party. So it's like, it's not necessarily... I think the service feels it's not in a position to release that information. Yeah. Right. So it, it, you're right. So there's redactions of all sorts um, in the materials, including redactions of Eforte's decision, because, of course, the CERC member, him or herself, is able to see the classified information is inside the secrecy tent. Again, that'll be true for Enzira. Uh, but the CERC decision, the, the judgment by Eforte, when it goes out to the parties, that in this case, BCCLA, has to be redacted for purposes of non-disclosure of of uh, information that's prejudicial to national security, right? So what we have is a compilation of documents with a lot of black lines. And the problem with documents that have a lot of black lines is depending on your predisposition and your willingness to make inferences and extrapolations, you can read things into those black lines that may or may not exist. Yeah, and I think this is a huge thing. And I want to just start off by saying, look, um, the service never really helps itself when it takes such a heavy-handed approach to uh, redaction. And this happens time and time and time again. And really, uh, it, I just think this is one of those situations where they've almost certainly redacted information that would help them. And uh, maybe there's reasons for that because they feel they have to protect the people who talk to them because that's always, you know, your number one concern as an intelligence service. That even if the information is innocuous, you don't want to just give it up uh, easily. And, and I understand that. But it, it looks bad, right? It, it really does look bad. One of the central issues here is they're like, look, 
their names in our database. They're meeting with industry representatives. Therefore, they're spying on us. So I thought it would be just useful to talk about, well, why could your name end up in a database? And does that actually mean there is a large investigation into what you're doing? So, you know, like if we think about the mandate of the service, um, it's really CSIS 101 is to protect the security of Canada, which includes critical infrastructure. Yeah. And the issue is critical infrastructure is actually largely owned by the private sector, right? It's not just government of Canada infrastructure, it's infrastructure generally. So, you know, the kind of uh, pipelines that bring oil to communities and stuff like that, like that is actually a national security concern. Uh, a lot of our computer information systems, the way our, our telecommunication systems are privately owned. But CSIS is a mandate to make sure that, you know, foreign governments aren't targeting them and things like this. So a well, lot of... It, but uh, they're confined by their act. Well, right? no, let me... Yeah. I'm not there okay. yet. Yeah. Let me finish. All right. Okay, I'm not done. <laughs> so the CSIS mandate is to advise the government of Canada. Right. Right. So the government of Canada will convene meetings with its partners in critical infrastructure protection and things like this. Now, sometimes CSIS is invited to those meetings, right, as, as, a, as a part of this. Now, does this mean that CSIS is briefing... Uh, in meeting with private industry, well, it kind of depends on how you understand that mandate aspect of it. The fact that, you know, the government of Canada convenes meetings, brings partners together, and they can have conversations about security issues. Mm. So that's largely, I think, what's happening here. It's not that CSIS is going in and, and briefing people. However, what we are seeing is increasingly uh, concern, not on the environmental side, really. It's more on the state-owned enterprise side. Right. That, you know, the, the things that the national security agencies are increasingly concerned with isn't a bunch of people dressed like sea turtles parading in the street. They're worried about state owned enterprises coming in and investing in the oil patch or taking over pipeline issues because because there's some concern about, like, what is the overall interest of states, say, I'm going to use the word China, China in, in this space. And we saw even the government, it's going to start spending, I think, something like $13.8 million per year in the federal budget to do outreach with the private sector to start talking about these issues with them. So clearly the government of Canada does feel that CSIS has some responsibility to start briefing the private sector on its concerns. Right. So I think that the government of Canada is taking kind of a wider view of this. No, we can have a conversation about whether that's appropriate or not. But the idea that, you know, these are some kind of secret backroom meetings to talk about protesting environmentalists, I think, is actually very, very questionable. And, and the second aspect of that is at these meetings, it really kind of gets down to the issue of bureaucracy, that when these meetings are taking place, you it's your job as the representative of the service to take notes as to what was discussed. And then when you get those notes, you upload them to the system because you need a corporate record of what is discussed at these meetings. So let's say you're there to brief on, say, state-owned enterprises. Well, if the industry reps are there complaining about environmentalists or doing stuff like that, you're probably gonna take notes as to what their concerns are. Now, does that mean that the, you consider them a threat? No, but do you need some kind of factual record as to what was discussed at this meeting so that the next person who goes can actually understand what the concerns of these people are. And let's say you need to reassure them that actually, no, we're not mounting these large investigations into these groups. But, you know, all of this is necessary. You have to keep records of this in the system. And I think all of this is being lost in the various conversations that are happening. So I get frustrated because to me, it's it's like ATIP journalism where, you know, you ATIP a document and you see, uh, you know, like CSIS was in a meeting with private sector and environmental groups were discussed. 
and you leap to the conclusion, ergo, ceases is, envi- like, is monitoring environmental groups. No, it's just not how this works. There's a whole variety of reasons why these things happen. And it's it's very frustrating to me that there doesn't seem to be much effort on the part of some of the reporters who are talking about this to actually reach out to people who've been in these meetings in the past, uh, who know uh, how these things work. It just seems to be, you know, you know, one plus one equals two, when actually, in reality, it can be like one plus one equals 64. It can be really, really complicated. And uh, I, I think sometimes a lot of that nuance last. So I'll stop ranting. Right. No, well, I mean, I think, <laughs> I think I think these are good points. I'll just make a few points, observations about the CSIS Act, because that was squarely in front of the uh, e Fortier when he made this decision. Right. And he was asked, basically, uh, did the service collect information about groups or individuals for their activities in relation to the Northern Gateway Pipeline Project? Answer, no. In, any information that was collected was incidental to a legitimate CSIS threat investigation. All right. So that requires some unpacking. So CSIS uh, has, as you suggested, a mandate, and the mandate that it would be applicable here is to, to investigate threats to the Security of Canada, which is a defined term. That defined term, as we've said repeatedly, includes uh, espionage and sabotage, mm-hmm. terrorism, mm-hmm. foreign influence activity, mm-hmm. and subversion, all of which are defined terms, right? And so they're typically they're detrimental to the interests of Canada, they're clandestine, right? So it's not just that it's a foreign influence activity, it's detrimental to the interests of Canada and it's clandestine, right? So there are these additional supplemental requirements that themselves are pretty vague, but nevertheless circumscribe the, the scope. Yes. Right, and so first point, subversion. The service hasn't done a subversion investigation for the better part of two and a half decades. My understanding uh, was they stopped in 1986. Right, so subversion, and subversion is defined essentially as uh, using uh, means of violence to overthrow the constitutionally uh, ordered government of, of Canada. And, and historically, one of the concerns with subversion, and this was a point that CERC made in 1989 when it reviewed the CSIS Act, is sometimes we look at the RCMP Security Service, they conflate subversion with dissent. Yep. Right? So that's, but you know, we don't have to have that conversation because CSIS doesn't do subversion investigations. And even if it did, I doubt it would be quite as blinkered on this issue as, as compared to the security service in the 1970s. <laughs> uh, espionage and sabotage, right? Again, that's detrimental to the interest of Canada, right? So uh, we have had pipeline projects blown up, right? I mean, there have been, there's, uh, there was a bombing campaign, right? It, back about 10 years ago. So espionage and sabotage, espionage, of course, stealing an IP, etc. Sabotage is uh, the, the use of violent means to destroy infrastructure. So that's within the service's mandate. And I would also add to that hacking. Uh, you know, there's yeah, a lot uh, of concerns uh, right now right. that, you know, Russia's like uploading malware into our critical infrastructure systems. Right. And of course, terrorism. I mean, there would be presumably a fair amount of overlap between certain forms of sabotage and terrorism. Terrorism would be ideologically motivated acts of violence, serious acts of violence as defined in the CSIS Act, serious acts of violence, uh, which could include using violence against critical infrastructure, right? So uh, it's not that CSIS doesn't have a remit when there's a threat actor who may be implicated in attacks on, on critical infrastructure. So that's the first point. It could, in fact, be engaged in a lawful investigation where it has reasonable grounds to suspect that there's a threat to the security of Canada, the purpose of which would then be to advise the government of Canada. I'll come back to that in a second. Now, the Section 2 also has a carve-out. It says... But threats to the security Canada do not include lawful uh, advocacy, protest, or dissent, right? Uh, so long as not done in conjunction with any of the things we've mentioned. And so the fact that you are in the midst of planning a terrorist plot and you turn up at a protest doesn't mean that all of a sudden the service has to turn a blind eye to you, the threat actor, right? You're not immunized by virtue of having participated also in a protest if you also are a threat actor. In conjunction with is a broad expression, and I've had in the past some objections about 
its breadth. But the bottom line is that the carve-out for lawful advocacy, protest, and dissent doesn't mean you get to camouflage. Right, it's not unlimited. It's, it's not unlimited, okay. So, but the service is very, very sensitive about, and cognizant, and this was one of the findings of E. Fortier, of this carve-out for lawful advocacy, uh, protest, and dissent. Okay, so the bottom line in terms of this analysis was that any information that might have been collected as part of an investigation was incidentally collected in the appropriate uh, course of investigating a threat actor. CSIS does have a domestic extremism program. That's all over the record here. Mm-hmm. It should have a domestic extremism program. Uh, and so the, the, the issue really is, uh, first of all, do you trust the CERC board member to have vetted the material properly and arrive at a conclusion. A lot of the conclusion and a lot of the facts that led to this conclusion are behind redactions. So there's an element of trust here. And then the the, the supplemental issue and the one that was really in the media and, and some of the stories was the issue as to whether, in fact, the service can pass on information to the private sector. Uh, and you've raised that issue. The, the one sort of kernel of doubt I have is that the, the competency of CSIS to advise the private sector is not well reflected in the statute, right? Sure. And, and so its job is to advise the government of Canada. It has certain powers of disclosure. Those powers of disclosure, um, and they're governed really by Section 19 of the Act, are really directed at governmental agencies. Yes. And so if you know, if, if I were to look at this Act in the same way perhaps as I would have looked at the Act involving CSE you know, prior to C-59, if I look at this Act, the CSE Act, the problem with the CSE's power was that it wasn't able to actually involve itself with the private sector for cybersecurity purposes. C-59 corrected that. With the consent of a private sector enterprise, CSE can now be involved in cybersecurity to hone up their their defenses. Well, I would say the problem with the CSIS Act now is that the legislative competency of the service to provide an advisory function uh, to non-governmental entities is not crystal clear. Uh, Now, CSIS could provide information to the National Energy Board or to some other entity, public safety, and public safety could then decide to consult or discuss with and I think that's sector, the model that's largely used right I mean that is that is typically how it is and, and also it's not like like you're just handing it out to any Tom Decker Harry I mean usually these are people who are, are departmental security officers within their respective organizations who are approved by the government who then work with public safety and then or, or like, you share with the police because you've detected a threat actor who's actually now posing a threat and Get into the intelligence. You know, and, but, but the other thing is, too, it's like, you know, if you read that so strictly, it would mean that CSIS couldn't go out and talk to the community about their work. It would mean, like, you know, that you couldn't go to, uh, like, a mosque or a church or whatever and say, hey, yeah. these are the kinds of things we do. So I, I think that, like, a super strict reading of that would actually be pretty detrimental um, because I think you want the service actually advising different community groups as to what it right. does, right? Well, I, I think you're right. There's a good policy justification for this practice. The, the sort of one asterisk I'd put beside that is, well, I mean, let's clean up the act, right? Let's, let's, you lawyers. Well, but it's important, <laughs> right? Because you know how this works. You know I do this, know how this works this, now. This, you sit around and you go, can we do this? And then you bounce that idea around to 42 different people and three different departments, and it takes a year. Uh, right, so the absence of clarity uh, in in these sorts of circumstances is actually really, really detrimental from a policy perspective. And so, yeah, you lawyers, you're always putting impediments in our way. Well, actually, you know, some some lawyers actually try to say, "Look, you've got an impediment. Let's fix it." I'm not disagreeing with you. I'm just suggesting that the that this case identifies a, a broader policy problem uh, that really relates to the antiquity of this act. Yeah, greatly updated by C-59, but that's not to say that there's not work, more work to be done. It'll be interesting to see because, like I said, like a hardcore interpretation would mean the bud- the federal budget in having CSIS going out and talking to the private sector would then be violating the law. 
Yeah, well, it depends what you how you interpret. Yeah, it interprets section nineteen in, uh, in terms of you know the scope of of what it is that's being disclosed, as opposed to just you know here we are, this is CSIS, this is what we do. I don't see that really mounting to a disclosure, but in other circumstances where you've got the fruits of an analysis, what is your capacity to share that outside of government? federal government for that matter. I guess the, the last point I want to raise about this, though, is is kind of the point that you were saying is, is yes, CSIS does have domestic extremist investigations. And, and actually, if anything, it's become more and more prominent, not because of environmental groups, but because of, I would say, the rise of the far right in Canada, uh, the extreme, the far right extremists, um, which we've talked about many times on the podcast. But I, the other thing is, it's just like, the context of this is just driving me crazy because, you know, this is 2014. This is the height of foreign fighter concern, which had really started about a year earlier with, you know, there was the Inaminas attack where uh, Canadians were involved in a, an attack on an oil finery in Algeria, which had killed at least around 50 people. Uh, there had been uh, attacks uh, by a Somali Canadian who uh, went to Somalia and did an attack at the Mogadishu courts. And there had been uh, like a number of foreign fighters that are coming to the attention uh, of authorities at this time. And the idea that CSIS was somehow devoting hundreds of hours to, again, people dressed as sea turtles is just not, it just doesn't make sense at this time. Like, like they were literally dragging people off of files and putting them on the foreign fighter issue at this time. Yeah. The idea that this is, this compromises a larger major investigation is really, really deeply, wrong <laughs> well it's just the, it's like that's actually on the say. record right two two, yeah. two thirds of CSIS investigations in the period 2014 were on terrorism related files one third on foreign influence and espionage issues yeah and uh i would say even of, out of the terrorism issues this really didn't measure up in any particular way so i, I think you know and, and where, so where i get frustrated is i actually really support um, civil society engaging in this space. Uh, I don't always agree with Citizen Lab, but I think they do brilliant work. I think they're just wonderful, even if I you know, sometimes have issues with them. I think it's good that you need a robust civil society challenging things. But to me, this it just seems a little bit cynical in, in terms of how they, they are interpreting this, this kind of big press conference that they did. And uh, it, to me, it just kind of works to to undermine trust so that when you know when, when it comes time to actually raise the alarm bell, you know, when it comes time to actually, you know, say, hey, this is really wrong or this shouldn't have happened, then people are maybe a little less interested because, they, you know, of, of the kind of fuss you made over something that really uh, I don't think is there, has already been reviewed extensively. I, I don't see how this is particularly a great use of their time. Yeah, but this is my view. I, well, I mean, I, <laughs> and you're and I, you're welcome to well, disagree. So I, I, I don't disagree with you. I mean, I think that the role of a civil liberties association is to play that challenge function. It's an early warning system, which means that perhaps they're more polemical than you and I might be prepared to be. Uh, which is fine. In terms of being academics. Yeah. Uh, on the other hand, I, I do, when I read the documents, I was not unprepared to make the inferences that, that the BCCLA uh, was prepared to make. Inferences essentially filling gaps in the redactions. Given that the, very f the E4TA made very firm conclusions, that's not redacted. Um, and so you have to ignore the conclusions and assume that there's some kind of malfeasance revealed somewhere in the documents that's redacted that E4TA turned a blind eye to. And I'm just not prepared to, to make that inference. So should we talk about the other CSIS issue pretty quickly? Because I know yeah. we're running out of time. Sure. So the other issue that came up this week was, uh, you know, John McCallum uh, did an interview with the South China Morning Post, which is a, a newspaper, I believe, out of Hong Kong. 
Um, and uh, they, but either way, it's in South Asia. And uh, he did an interview, and he uh, warned his former contacts in China in their foreign affairs ministry that any further punishments imposed on Canada's experts could trigger a change of government that would be unfavorable to Beijing, and that, quote, anything that is more negative against Canada will help the conservatives who are much less friendly to China and the liberals. And people were upset about that. Uh, and I, I'm going to just full on say, I think those comments were exceptionally inappropriate. It, he is acting as a private citizen, but certainly someone who had a former role as ambassador. And I, I don't think he was doing anyone any favors when, when he said that, particularly so close to an election. That said, so then the Conservative Party uh, wrote a letter to the service and said that Mr. McCallum should be investigated for foreign influence or encouraging China to uh, hack the election. Now, just as I said, I think the comments that Mr. McCallum made were deeply inappropriate. Uh, I just also don't think you should be dragging CSIS into this. I also think it's inappropriate to direct the service to investigate, at least publicly, your opponents or your uh, former opponents. This is not what mature uh, political, uh, you know, countries do with one another. We've seen this time and time again in other, unfortunately, Western countries recently, and I think that's a problem. That said, there is a, a threat of Chinese foreign influence in the election. It was interesting. Uh, Lee, I don't know how you say his name, and I'm going to get it wrong, so I apologize in advance. Is Lee Bertiam uh, from the Canada Press, or Canadian Press. He had a story last week that at a meeting of deputy ministers in March 2018, that they were actually briefed on concerns that India and China are trying to, quote, directly and indirectly work to influence diaspora communities across the country, uh, which includes elections. And so that was kind of interesting that, you know, this is something that uh, security and intelligence services are increasingly worried about. We've seen a number of stories about this recently. And, and there's a difference here. Like, to say that this, the, the, you, you suspect that a country is attempting to influence is not to say that Chinese Canadians are working for China, that these are two separate things. It's just the idea that China may try to mobilize its diaspora, India may try to mobilize its diaspora, and we don't know what the effects of that would be, but what we have to worry about from a national security perspective is the attempt. So I think this is part of the problem, is that you know we've heard so much about clandestine foreign influence, we kind of lose the plot on what it actually is and what we worry about as, as a security service uh, or as a, as a country. And I think that's unfortunate uh, because these are uh, pretty serious issues and I don't think it's the kind of thing that we should be turning into campaign fodder. So I, I think those are good points, Stephanie. I, I just want to make two points of my own. The, the first is, look, these things are governed by the statute, as I've kept emphasizing. And so if you're talking about foreign influenced activity, you've got to refer back to that concept in the CSIS Act under Section 2. And just to share that with listeners, I've mentioned it, but I'll give you the actual language. Foreign-influenced activities within or relating to Canada that are detrimental to the interests of Canada and are clandestine or deceptive or involve a threat to any person. And if that definition is not what fits this scenario, CSIS has no remit. It has no mandate, right? Right. So, again, these things all come back to established principles. These are not agencies that are ungoverned by either principles in law, like statutes, or when they operationalize these statutory provisions by internal guidelines and the like. All right. So, I mean, I think that's an important context for listeners to understand. Right. That it's not, this isn't just, these, are, these aren't fluid things for the purpose of the service. It's, it's guided by a set of legislative statutes, principles, and procedures. Yeah. Uh, and I guess the, the, the second point I'll make is that it, it's uh, in the BCCLA complaint, one of the one of the impetus 
to the environmental groups fearing that they might have been targeted was a political statement made by a then minister about radical environmental groups. Mm. And so there's an irony there, right? That, that if it becomes politicized, if the discussions around intelligence become politicized at a, a, a partisan level, that has sort of a knock-on effect on how the public, the broader public might perceive what it is that intelligence services do. Right, especially if it's seen as responding to, you know, the request of political parties to investigate certain things or certain people. And I mean, this is the real thing that we're worried about here, is this broader ghost of politicization that seems to be haunting our discussion. We have... You know, I worry we have in Alberta now an investigation into foreign influence activities in oil. You know, this idea that, you know, CSIS is heavily politicized and is, is investigating environmental groups. And then you have political parties saying, yes, you should, you know, investigate uh, this political opponent of ours um, for, for what they've said. And all none of this is good or healthy conversation about national security in Canada. And it has me deeply concerned. We need to have a more mature understanding and we all need to take a step back. We're all kind of I think still in awe about what we've seen in the United States and West you know in parts of Western Europe with regards to foreign influence activities and we just need to take a deep breath and realize you know that there are actually you know professionals who are guided by principles by ethics by law by sense of, of judgment when it comes to making decisions about how these how these issues which are very tricky admittedly are investigated right and that's not to say that there isn't a role for review and, There's absolutely and, a role for review. Before review oversight, and that comes back to Yves conclusion, right? So I put a lot of stock in it. All right, so that's all the time we have today. This is going to be our last kind of newsy episode of the season. We are going to have uh, two other episodes uh, hopefully coming out. One with uh, a special guest, which we will still keep under wraps, I think, for now. And then uh, we're, uh, back by popular demand um, is Tomaz Junot, uh, who's going to talk to us a little bit about Iran and uh, what's going on with regards to uh, the region. And you're going to chime in with some of the legal elements, and I'm going to be the curious interviewer because I, I really don't have that much to say. So uh, I, think, I think that's it. So Last year, we ended, uh, we took August off because uh, August is the season that academics freak out <laughs> and try to get all their work done before the school year starts. And so that's pretty much what we're doing. And um, But we look forward to coming back to you in September. We have a, a couple of really cool plans. Um, uh, the election's going to be on. There's going to be um, a, a number of trials. Uh, the ongoing Min Wen Zhou case, the Alec Manassian case is, is, is heating up. So uh, there'll be lots to talk about, even if C-59 has ascended into the <laughs> realm right. of law. Right. It'll be fun to watch it grow up. Right. Learn to walk. Oh my goodness. Watch it go to uh university. You know, get, get its first Learn legal challenge. Yeah. It's gonna be it's gonna be fantastic. Okay folks, uh see you next time. Thanks very much. Thank you. And we'll be maybe last season will be a little less ranty. <laughs> Bye.